Stanley was probably the worst squire than a knight could ask for. He was clumsy, forgetful, nearsighted, and often confused which side of the sword went where. Feeling pity on the poor lad, patient Sir Randolph took Stanley into his care to teach him the ways of knighthood. Fearing that if he didn't, Stanley was on the fast track to becoming the youngest village idiot in the history of his small town. On their journey, they crossed paths with a much more well-knight named Sir Arthur and his advisor Merlin. As they made camp together, they shared stories of their grand adventures, and Arthur showed off his new sword, Excalibur. He told Stanley and Sir Randolph how Excalibur was given to him by the Lady of the Lake. He shared that this gift signified his rightful rule over all of England. While pondering what a poor form of government strange women handing out swords from lakes was, Stanley noticed that Merlin's eyes were fixed on him. As their eyes met, Merlin began to speak, My boy, you have a brave and bright future ahead of you. One day, people will tell stories of your bravery and your daring feats of wit and strength. Hopeful and a, lot, and a bit relieved, Sir Randolph chimed in, Please, sir, tell us more. What do your eyes see for the future of my squire? Merlin, looking pleased with himself, stroked his long, wispy beard, and he continued, Oh, goodly sir, when you return after your journey, you will find your village burned to the ground and the lad's family gone. He will, sur he will find survivors who will tell him of an ancient beast who is responsible for this atrocity, and impassioned Stanley will rally them to his side and follow the trail. Along the way, you, his mentor, will die, but don't worry, he will take up your title, sword and shield. One by one, Stanley will be abandoned, but he will face his foe. It will be a glorious battle. Stanley will go blind, but in the end, he will vanquish the beast. Turning to Stanley with a gleeful expression, Merlin explained, I see great things for you, my boy. And it was just then that they realized that they probably shouldn't have camped on a cliff edge. <laughs> Doesn't knowing the future sound really great? I, I, often, ask, I often ask questions uh, when, I, when I worked in youth ministry. I would often ask questions to our teens, like, hey, if you could have any superpower, like, what would it be? And and, and, and without fail, like somewhere along the line, someone would be like, I want to know the future. I want to see the future. Um, sometimes we don't want to know the future. <laughs> if, you, if you'd ever look at any story of anybody that has, has, has had great achievements in their, in their life, great stories of success or exemplary character, often you'll find trails of trouble and hardship or struggle. And how true is it for each of us that if your younger self knew the extent to which you would need to go through to get to where you are today, you following me there? You probably wouldn't have chosen that road for yourself. Perhaps if you had known the, the, the headache and heartache of, of parenting, those sleepless nights, those nights of worrying, perhaps you may not have chosen to be a parent. If you've known financial struggles, maybe, maybe you wouldn't have known, maybe you wouldn't have chosen that professional path. You wouldn't have dated that person, moved to that city. You wouldn't have gone to that college. But we don't see the future. We don't get to see the future, nor do we have a clear picture in the midst of our circumstances what exactly they're for and where they're going to lead. And this is exactly where we're going to pick up our conversation about the, the church, 
the unstoppable movement of God through his church. This morning, we're gonna be talking about upstarts and startups. And, uh, and we're gonna be continuing in this story of the church found in the book of Acts. If you wanna follow along with me on the screen, you're welcome to do that here. Um, the Bible in the pew in front of you, it's gonna be on page 900. It's, it's 1235 in my Bible. I don't know what it is in yours, but, but there you go. You have multiple places to look for it to, to, uh, to read along with. So chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. And, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and, te- and to teaching uh, um, and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when, G- when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, a synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Several years ago, Doug Diven was the, uh, the youth pastor at the, uh, the Christ Wesleyan Church in Milton, Pennsylvania. Sitting across the office from him was a young upstart asking questions, questioning Doug's decisions, and not so subtly telling him how things ought to be in the youth ministry and how he should do them. As Doug calmly and explained things like mission, vision, and purpose of the Interstate 180 Youth Ministry and the Christ Wesleyan Church, he looked across the office and said, Damien, you're not seeing the big picture, are you? That, that meeting has stuck with me uh, to this day uh, because he was absolutely right. I, I didn't see the big picture in, in things. I, I, didn't have, I didn't have something that we like to call perspective. And while in that moment, well, in that moment and after that meeting, I didn't gain some like superpower or some innate ability to be able to see into the future or, or scenario out how the outcome was, was, was gonna happen. I, I, did gain, I did gain perspective in the midst of circumstances and, and, under, and start to understand the importance of gaining perspective. And there's always, there's always a couple of sides to a story. And, uh, and, and sometimes in our circumstances, there are a couple of sides to, to those. And as we look at Paul's story, in light of that, we have to remember that this is not just his story, but it's God's story. And it's the story of us and the story of his church. And there are three areas that we need to consider in understanding your story. And this morning, I may leave you with more questions than answers. Because unless you've invited people into your life to share in your story, unless you've invited people into your circumstances, you're probably the only one who knows them. This is kind of a plug for connect groups, like do life together with people. Yeah, it, it works. 
It, it's effective. It's, it's good to be able to share. It's good to be able to share life with people. But for now, I'm going to give you a bunch of questions to ask. And maybe if you are in a connect group, you can go to your connect group. And as you're talking about life stuff, you can talk through some of these things. But uh, we're going we're gonna to be diving into, this morning, three areas. We're going to be looking at the macro, the micro, and the meta. And we're going to be kind of zooming in and out here because there are different pieces that are kind of coming into play in each of these. So we're, first, we're going to talk about the macro. These are things that are kind of going on in like the immediate area, the, the things that are going on around you. And if you've been following along reading the book of Acts or you've been listening through the sermon series, you've been uh, connected here at Eau Claire Wesleyan and, and you've been tracking along, uh, last week, uh, Pastor Mark shared about uh, what happened right before uh, this passage that we shared here uh, this morning. Paul has just left this incredibly fruitful ministry. He was in Athens where he was having these incredible conversations about Jesus using the Athenians' culture and art and philosophy as talking points. He, he was welcomed into one of the most elite gatherings of the minds to discuss these things but he's not in Athens anymore. He's in Corinth. Corinth was rough. It was, it was a messed up place. It, it was a place of great excess in all things. It was, and geographically, it was positioned between two harboring ports. So business was booming in Corinth. And not only that, but it had been the home to the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. And in addition to that history, Corinth's wealth and commerce fueled an anything-goes lifestyle where gossip was gospel and bold displays of shamelessness were just another Tuesday. Let, let me put it this way. Uh, if you've ever looked at like a Yelp review for a business or a restaurant uh, or, or anything like that, you know, you go online and there are resources that you can, you can give, you know, a certain number of stars to those places. Like, like Corinth would be like a solid like one star, like maybe one and a half star. But before, before Yelp reviews, there was a saying in that day that, was, that said this, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It's not for everyone. It may not be your thing. You may not make it out alive. And into this city, the upstart Paul seeks to begin a new startup. In order for that to happen, he needed support. He had heard that the Jews were, were being kicked out of Rome and that there was a tent maker named Aquila in the city. Now, Paul had some experience in tent making, so, so he worked with Aquila and his wife Priscilla, continuing to hone that skill and preaching where he had opportunity. And then reinforcements came in in the form of, of, uh, of Silas and, and Timothy. And by that, their support, Paul was able to fully devote himself to preaching and, and teaching about Jesus. And in the midst of that, Paul experienced uh, even more resistance. That's funny. It's, it's interesting. We actually still use the term uh, tent maker today to describe like a church planter or somebody who is, is trying to do ministry in a location and, and kind of work, splitting their time working bivocationally. And I can tell you from experience, that is hard. It is hard to divide your time to fully engage in loving your church and, and investing in your church and ministering to your church and be divided in working uh, another job on top of that. Um, but, uh, but into this, like there was this cultivation for Paul, this, this season of cultivation and in this relationship, not only with Aquila and Priscilla, but also the people that they did business with as well. 
And since this is not only the story of the church, but it's also the st- our story, this is a place for us to start asking some questions, which is always good when you're trying to gain perspective. So I'm gonna, just going to have all the questions put up on the screen all at once and kind of talk through them here. But the first question is, what's going on around me right here and right now? This is kind of a question to assess the situation. Like, what is going on around me in this, in this moment? There's, there's a little term that I like uh, that's it's called situational awareness. Like, what is going on in my situation? What am I aware of in the situation around me? A uh, Question number two that kind of goes hand in hand with this is, what is the cultural climate? What is, what is the climate in, in my home? What is the climate in my relationships? What is the climate in, in, my, uh, in my neighborhood, in my church, in, my, in, my, uh, in, my, in the organization that I work for, in my state, in my government, etc.? just kind of ripples out from there, considering what is the climate? What, what is the climate that I'm entering into in these? Is it a receptive climate? Is it a hostile climate? Is it kind of neutral right now? Is it curious? What's going on in the climate around me? And then the next question is, what are the things that I do not control? What are the things that I do not control? We, we don't really like to not control things. And if you ever think that you, don't, you aren't a person who, who is okay like not controlling things, let somebody change something that you really like. And you'll see that you really do actually like to control. You actually do like to control something. Hey, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I know that, I know that for a fact. But, but it's, it's important for us to recognize as we're assessing the situation of what's going on in the macro, what's going on in the immediate area surrounding us, what are the things that we just simply don't have control over? And this layer is one that's a little bit more about observation. Like there's not a lot of action that we take right away in the macro area. Asking these questions about the macro kind of gives us a a perspective or a a starting point to uh, to start asking questions on the micro level. The micro level is is kind of what's the internal state? What's going on in me right now? This is is a picture of, 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 uh, of what's going on in you. And when we start getting a picture of what's going on around us, we can start considering our place within a bigger picture excuse me, in a bigger picture of what God is doing in the here and now. Resistance and rejection, they drove Paul away from the synagogue. And this is the place, this is probably the place where he should have been the most received. He was an educated Jewish scholar. But they drove him out and it drove him to to preach to people who were actually interested in something different. They were actually interested in hearing something different and doing something about it. And it was uncomfortable, but Paul took his message, the message of Jesus, into that rough and messed up city, and he preached for a year and a half. Like I said in just a second ago, the, the micro level is all about internal reflection. It's, it's you, not someone else. What do you choose to do in light of the things that are going on in the macro level? What do you choose to do I think one of the most important gifts that God has given to us is, uh, is the gift of free will. Uh, we have the power to choose right things. We have the power to choose wrong things. And we choose what we do. We really do. We have, I think we have more choice than we give ourselves credit for. Like, we choose how we react. We choose how we respond. We, were, we choose in the long term how something makes us feel, how it impacts us in the long term. We choose how we filter the events of our day-to-day. And, and while we have this gift, we're often told how to use it. 
Kind of like I'm going to do here in just a minute, but hold on, hold on to that thought. Sometimes when, when, we have, when we have these choices, we can either, we can, we can have like, like that, I don't know a better way to put it other than like choice constipation where we like, we have like a myriad of choices and we don't choose anything because we're just so tense about choosing the wrong thing. And, uh, but, but sometimes, sometimes we, have, we have people that tell us, you know what, you ought to choose a certain way or you ought to choose to think a certain way. And, and we often find ourselves getting, getting lost in feedback loops. Um, sometimes we get lost in echo chambers too when we surround ourselves with like the same ideas. Um, and when, whether it's in your, your church or your relationship or your attitudes, the, the things that you, cho- that you choose, sometimes within this, this feedback loop, there's, there, there's this cycle of, of offense and pain and blame and mistrust that continues until we become cynical. We become cynical and we start to believe the worst about people. We start, we start to, to have the worst attitude about our interactions with, with one another. We, we assume motivation. And we believe or expect very little from others, including ourselves. And how true is it when you start spiraling down a road like that, it's so hard for us to break away. We hit points where, where we almost feel validated when we feel like a martyr, we, we self-sabotage or we self-justify. We, we feel even virtuous in our offenses, unknowingly setting ourselves up as the pinnacle of rightness and righteousness. And we can choose this road, but it will only lead to more and more of the same thing. There's a certain point in time, there's a certain point in time where you have to take a look in the mirror and ask the question, is there something going on in me that I can change? I kind of I call this the Taylor Swift predicament. Like if any of you know like who Taylor Swift is, like, you know, she's written like tons and tons and tons of songs and most of them are about breakups. And like, there's a certain point in time where I have to, I like, I would love to sit down with Taylor and be like, honey, like there's one thing that's the same thing in all of these equations. It's you, dear. But how, tr- how true, though, is, it, is this of us, though? We, we, we find ourselves kind of in this feedback loop of like, well, the problem is them, and the, the problem is the church, and the problem is just hypocrites, and the problem is just the world. The problem is that group over there. And we don't stop to take a minute and ask, God, what do you want to do on the micro level? What do you want to do in me and through me? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to level with you guys here. Like, this is, this is hard, but I'm not sure that we would be reading anything about Paul or from Paul if he had just allowed the, his experience of rejection to make him bitter. Like, he would, he would have just kind of crossed his arms and sat on his hands and just said, you know, that's re- that'd be really, really hard to do. You'd have to have really long arms to do that. But, you know, if he just, just kind of crossed his arms and sat down and said, you know, I'm just, no, I'm just not going to do this anymore because they've rejected me. I'm taking my ball and going home. If Paul had done that, we would not have, we would not have some of the most incredible letters of Scripture. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be reading about him because he would have become embittered against the Corinthians and against the Jewish people. Okay, so now's, now's the part where I'm actually going to tell you like what to do with your free will. I told you I was going to. Actually, I'm not going to tell you. Jesus is going to tell you, so that's okay. If you get offended by it, you can take it up with him. Uh, Jesus, Jesus kind of poses this in a form of a question. And he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the, pl- the plank 
in your own eye. This is in Matthew 7, verse 3. Well, that's ridiculous, Jesus. Like, why would you say something like that? That makes no sense. Well, because on the micro level, because on the micro level, we have to ask questions about, God, what do you want to do in me? What needs to change in me? And as ridiculous as it sounds, God calls us to self-examination in light of our circumstances and sometimes maybe even in spite of our circumstances. He calls us to self-evaluation. This is where like, I, and this isn't just a New Testament thing either. Like in the Old Testament, David wrote, writes one of, the, one of the most iconic psalms. He says, he says, search me, O God, and know my inmost being. Root out if there's any offensive way in me. Sounds like self-evaluation. And it's vital for us to consider this in the midst of our circumstances. What, what might God be trying to do in you and what choices do you have to make? On the micro level, we ask questions like, what's going on in me? Why am I feeling what I feel? And, and well, we shouldn't be guided by feelings. We should never be dictated by feelings. It is important for us to recognize why we feel the things that we do. It's kind of healthy to do that. Who is God uniquely created me to be. Who is he uniquely created you to be? What has God said about me? I'm going to step off notes here for a second because I think this is a really, really powerful and loaded question. What has God said about me? All throughout Scripture, there are promises. All throughout Scripture, there are things that God says about you and I that can bring incredible freedom if we grab onto them. Things, things like, you know, like we're more in Christ, we're more than conquerors. That, that, I am, that I'm made holy by God. That I'm no longer a sinner, that I'm a saint. And, and if you have a tough time believing those things or if you're like, well, that's just flowery literature, let me tell you about what happens when God speaks. When God speaks, stars burst into light. When God speaks, the earth is formed. When God speaks, land is separated from the sea. When God speaks, storms are calmed. When God speaks, demons flee. When God speaks, the dead are raised. And he does that in our hearts today too. When God speaks truth into your heart, it separates the lies away. And friends, I think for a long time, for a long, long, long time, we as Christians have felt very, very helpless, almost neutered in our, in our, in our understanding of who we are in Christ. Let me tell you, oh, let me tell you, there is so much freedom. There's so much freedom in understanding who you are that I don't have to be anything other than what God says I am. I don't have to be what anybody else expects of me. I have to be simply a child of God. And that he knows me and he loves me completely. And that he loves me so much that he doesn't want me to stay in that place. And the place where I would be weighed down by sin, where I would be weighed down by hurt, where I would be weighed down from shame, the voice of truth, the voice of God speaks in and says, rise, live. You are alive in me. And Christians, 
With Christ alive in you, you're unstoppable. The church is unstoppable. Don't let the lies on the micro level get in the way of what God is doing. Remember who it is that speaks these things to you. That'll preach. That's another sermon. And in light of that, what do I do with that? What do I do with that understanding of what God has to say about me? That infinite God has to say about finite me. What do I do with that? What needs to change? What needs to change in me? If I don't believe that I'm redeemed by God, if I don't believe that God is transforming me because I'm not living like I'm transformed, then something needs to change in me. And there's another question. I didn't have this written down in your notes, but I want you to write this down. And that is, who is glorified or who is honored by the choices that I make in the micro? Who is honored by the choices that I make in the micro? So our, our choices matter. What we do matters. And we either bring glory to ourselves, we bring gr- glory to, to other things or other people. I believe those are called idols. Or we can bring glory to God. And these are so important for us to ask because we get so stuck. We go, get so stuck on what other people have to say or, or our observations of others. But man, let me tell you that God has fearfully and wonderfully made you. That he has purpose for your life. And that he wants you to draw near to him so that he can show you who he's created you to be. And that it's beautifully different. You're going to be beautifully different from each other just as much as each church is from one another with individual purpose benefiting the whole of his church universal, ultimately giving us the most fulfilling life and bringing him glory. And the most important thing that you can do is the thing that you choose to do next. And that brings us to a final consideration. The meta. The meta is kind of what's imminent. It's not quite here yet, but it's coming. It's not quite, it has not quite arrived yet, but it's on its way. And this is the part that we don't find in the text here, but we do have a picture of from the rest of Scripture. We know that as a result of Paul's initial struggle and rejection in Corinth, that God begins a work within the city that would reinforce, would be reinforced by people like, like the Apostle Peter and, and like the scholar Apollos. There was something larger that God was weaving together and that Paul's journey was just one thread of his masterpiece. What Paul couldn't see while he was making tents, we have the benefit of about 2,000 years of history in which we see the letters that have impacted the church even today, sent by an upstart to a brand new startup. And because of that struggle, we have some of the most notable pieces of Scripture which tell us how how the church should function, the full transformation available to us in Christ, the unique nature of spiritual gifts, and what love looks like. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, I I want you to consider what your faith would look like without statements like this. In Christ, I am a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Or love is patient. 
Love is kind. We're, we are richly, richly impacted by what God was weaving through trials. And while you and I can't see the future, we can consider some things which will help us in the midst of where we find ourselves today. What is God working out for me? Remember, God is for you. He's not against you. He desires relationship with you, but he's a gentleman. And he lets you make that choice. Question number two, how might God use this? How might God use the situation? How might God use these circumstances? Does God have permission to use this? Remember, he's a gentleman. Does God have permission to use me right now? To use my circumstances right now? And this last one is a doozy. How can I allow God to leverage my present pain for someone else's future relief? How can I allow God to leverage my present pain for someone else's future relief? You know, that last one's a hard, hard one because we really, really like closure in things. And while C.S. Lewis wrote that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, we want to know why exactly we're being woken up. It may not be the answer that you want to hear, but your present pain may not be for you alone. You may be enduring something right now that the way that you respond, the hope that you find, how you cling to Christ, and the attitude that you carry through it can make all the difference for somebody else's future. Somebody else may get hope from seeing how you live. And friends, I believe that God allows us to go through Corinth situations, and maybe some of you here today are smack in the middle of something that doesn't make sense. You would not have chosen these circumstances for yourself. They're messy, they're ugly, and they're painful, yet, yet Jesus' words to Paul are the same that he's spoken to you and I here today. Do not be afraid, I am with you. Do not be afraid, I am with you. So if you're stuck or you aren't quite sure what's going on right now, if you're feeling rejected, rejected because of your faith, or if you're struggling and feeling like a failure, know this. There are some things that you can change, and there are some things that you can't. So choose to change what you can, and seek understanding as to why you feel the way that you do, and choose to yield those things to God trusting that he is with you even in the midst of what you cannot see. Then give God permission. Give God permission to use those feelings and reflections and reflect on where God has brought you from. There's nothing quite that clears the fog of those Corinth moments like remembering what God did in Athens. And if you're here today and you've just been on a losing streak, and you've just been on a streak where it just seems like failure after failure after failure and the Athens was so far away. Let me share Paul's words to the church. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close here in just a minute. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25 and, and verse 28, it says, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager anticipation, eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption into sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For this is the hope what we were saved for. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait for it patiently. And we know that in all things that God works out the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Friends, you are the upstart. You are the upstart that God wants to start something up in today. He is using the macro as he's weaving the meta. So give him the micro and trust him with what you choose to do next. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning that um, you, truly, you truly do work all things together for our good. And, and um, God, while we may not fully understand the reason for pain, the reason for our circumstances right now, we trust that you are God and that you are good. And God, in those, in those areas in the, in the macro where we don't have control, God, we want to give those things to you. You're like a loving father. You, you're, you're, uh, you, you care for us. And so God, we, we ask that you would take, take the circumstances, that you would use them, that you'd leverage them, not only for our good, but for, all the, for the good of those who are looking on, looking for a reason to hope. And God, for those choices that we have in the, in the micro, those things that, that we choose, the ways that we choose, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you give us wisdom and clarity to know how to choose right things, better things. And oh God, that you'd be glorified, that you'd be honored by them. God, we give you praise and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.